0: The following is a production of the People of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. If you have your uh, copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to John, chapter 1. We're continuing on through the prologue that we have here. We've been spending several weeks here going very slowly and methodically through this opening section of the Gospel of John. The reason is because he lays out everything here in this really first chapter that is gonna be revisited throughout the rest of the book, or it's the foundation of what he's going to argue or offer proof text for everything that he states here. So a lot of times we think of the gospels as just the stories of Jesus. We think of it as Jesus having these encounters with people who are needy, uh, who are hurt, who are diseased, and and we see the miraculous work of God in their life. But actually, when you look at the gospel of John, he's not just telling you stories to convince you of uh, how powerful Jesus was. He's offering these proof te- or offering these statements here at the very beginning. And then every story he tells you is pointing back to, and here's why I can say that. And here's why I can say this. And here's why I can say this. So all these themes develop here at the very beginning of the gospel of John. We talked about in those first eight verses that the first thing that he talks about is light revealed. So there is in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then he talks about these issues of light and life coming into that. So there is this revelation of God. We see in the very beginning of Genesis that God is the author of everything that is. And then John opens his gospel in very similar fashion, saying Jesus is God and he's the author of everything that is. And of course, we see those themes developing. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. John starts with... There was this light that has come into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome this light. we talked about all the significance of that. Well, in our passage today, as we work through 9 through 13 and 9 and 11, you're gonna see the next theme, which is light rejected. So the first eight verses, light is revealed and he talks about that. Then these next few verses is light rejected. And then you're gonna see him talk about the light being received. Now, this is key for us of understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be adopted into the family of God. He gives us the foundation of understanding how that process happens right here in these verses. So if you would follow along with me as I read John 1, 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was What a powerful opening here. And you can hear these themes being further developed. So light came onto the scene. Light cannot be overcome by the darkness. This world was a dark place. How did the world respond to this light? And notice there are two different responses there. And that's what we're going to highlight as we work through this. Now let's break it down verse by verse to understand the flow of thought here. Look again at verse nine. The true light which gives light to, what does it say? Everyone was coming into the world. Now, the first thing I want you to focus on is that second word there, true. What does he mean by the true light? Is there a false kind of light? Well, here the word for true, and often throughout the gospel of John, the word true means real or genuine. Okay. So it's not necessarily that dichotomy of false and true. It's like there is this and then there's a truer this. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. As you move through the Gospel of John, he gives us a whole lot of real, genuine ideas of how Jesus is greater than something else. So here we have this light. He is the true light. Um, We could could talk about the true worshipers that John's going to say. There's true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's going to talk about a true bread from heaven, a true vine. He's even later going to talk about a true God. So what does he mean by these true forms of all these different things? Well, what he's doing is comparing Jesus to something else, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament. So there's this revealing nature to John's use of this word. Word. Now, before we move forward, notice that there are versions of this that are not Jesus. So there is a light that is not the true light. There are worshipers that are not true worshipers. There is bread from heaven that is not the bread from heaven. There is a vine that is not the true vine. There is gods that are not the true God. And even we're warning that in the 10 commandments when it says, have no other, what? God's before me. So it doesn't say there exists no other gods. It's saying don't have any other gods before me. The reason is gods are anything that we give our devotion to. So they may be inanimate objects. It doesn't mean that there's another deity out there. Gods are things that we put on a pedestal because in our human constitution, we were created to worship something. Every single one of us. It's a part of how we were made. We were made to worship God, but in our rebellion, we chose to try and become our own gods. But because we're not made to be gods, we end up worshiping something else. And so we put something in our devotion. Now think about this again. If you go back to Genesis, the first time the word worship shows up in Genesis is when Abraham has been called to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. It's the first time the word ever shows up in scripture. And he says to those, when he knows he's gonna go over here and he knows what God has called him to do, he says, me and the boy are gonna go a little further and worship and come back to you. Now, in Abraham's mind, he was not thinking, I'm gonna go sing some songs. He wasn't thinking, I'm gonna go listen to my favorite preacher. He wasn't thinking about anything about a Bible study or a small group or anything like that. He was thinking, I've gotta sacrifice the most valuable thing to me, to God. That's the first time the word shows up. So think about worship is sacrifice. So if you wanna know what it is that you're worshiping, Look in your life and figure out the things you're sacrificing for. What is it in life that you're sacrificing? Are you sacrificing a ton for your family? Are you sacrificing a ton for your job? Are you sacrificing a lot to create an image? way you want to be viewed by other people, the kind of things you want to hear. What is it that you're sacrificing? Because you're spending time and money and energy on something, and whatever you're sacrificing for, that is what you're focused on in your worship. And so scripture keeps calling us back to this one true God. That's the only thing worthy of our worship, worthy of our sacrifice. Why? Because it's the only thing that pays dividends in return. Not that we're worshiping God because of what we get out of it, but we realize that God is the only author and source of goodness and life. And so the goodness and life flows to us however God determines for it to be done to us. But we can trust him because he's good. He's merciful. And so, all of this, we have to understand that we could be giving in to a lesser form of the true identity. Here's another way of thinking about it. All of these, if they are a lesser form, in other words, if it's light but not the true light, if it's worshiping but it's not true worshiping, if it's bread from heaven but not the true bread from heaven. What happens is we have focused on something that is pointing to Christ, but we have not taken the direction and we focus the thing instead of what the thing is pointing to, okay? So think about it like this. If we think about um, light, or we think about, let's let's talk about God. Let's talk about worship. That would be a great, easy one that we can all relate to. So if we talk about worship, we could come in and just love the experience. I love to sing the songs. I love to study God's word. I love to memorize it. I love to hear something different that I've never heard before. I love to go deep. But if our whole life is consumed with studying God's word, but not being in relationship with God, we've missed what the worship is pointing towards, which is what a true worshiper would be focused on. Do you see that? So in every one of those, if we're settling for less, we're settling for something less than what that thing is pointing us to, okay? So you can even go to the Old Testament and find some examples of what we're talking about here. Again, there's this revealing nature to John's use of this word true. It's not again, true and false, it's true and a truer true, all right? That sounds really confusing, but let me give you some examples. Do we see light in the Old Testament? Yes, we see light in Genesis, but we also know that the wisdom literature was referred to the Jesus uh, by the Jewish people as light. Also, when you look, dig deeper into their writings, we find that the wisdom and the law of Moses was called the light. What did the wisdom literature and the law of Moses point to? That's where you answer. Uh, That'd be awesome if you did it on cue. And so all the people watching, streaming online, you know, they would be like, man, those people are good, but we'll work on it. So what are they all pointing to? There, that's better, okay. So the thing about worshipers, worshipers go to a temple, but later on, Jesus is gonna say true worshipers don't go to a temple, they worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So it's not a place, it's not bound by place and time anymore. It's bigger than that, okay? Um, bread. There was manna that was given to the people as they wandered through the wilderness. And so that manna was this provision of God, but Jesus is a bigger picture. He is the living bread that's given to us. It doesn't just sustain us for a day, it sustains us forever. And daily we are being fed by Christ. The vine. The vine. Israel was referred to as a vine in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And then of course, there's that picture of God in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle or the temple, depending on which time period you're talking about. And in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest and only once a year and only with a blood offering could he enter into the presence of God. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and he dies on the cross, the veil is torn in two representing the fact that Jesus has opened access for us, not to have to have another mediator, but he is the only mediator between us and God. And now we have access to God, the father ourselves. So all of these things, John is going to keep pointing us to the fact that there are these truer forms of it. And when he talks about this truer form, he's talking about Jesus or he's talking about something Jesus accomplished. So John's point is this, Jesus is the word And this word came into our world as the light, the truest, most genuine, ultimate revelation of God to man. So so the word, this word that is the light is now coming into his own creation. The thing that he created himself. Go back to verse 3. In an act that is very distinct from creation. So he comes into the world, but even in the, in the coming of Christ, the coming of the light into his creation, he doesn't come in in a normal way. He is born of the Virgin Mary. You can see the illusions again what John talks about there when he talks about our own life, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So this is the beginning of John's explanation of the incarnation. Now, verse 14 is probably more explicit talking about the incarnation when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But there are hints of it right here that he's already talking about. Again, it reminds us of... God's intentionality in his creation, but not only in his creation, in his redemption, in his salvation that he has planned for us. So what we find is the Son. The son of God being sent into the world here is going to be echoed throughout the rest of the gospel of John over and over again. And all the encounters that he gives to us and all of the stories, what we find is Jesus is the son who has been sent by the father. He says that over and over again. And notice the next part of that verse. It says that he gives light to everyone. Okay, so there are a lot of things in there. First, the idea of light, also the light coming to everyone. Now, this phrase is directly connected to that previous phrase. This is the true light, and this true light is going to shine on everyone. Now, this phrase is very important for us to understand because a lot of times we think of having the light shown on us as a salvation experience. You know, Johnny Cash, I saw the light. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So he's talking about a salvation experience, right? I saw the light, the light came. It was a salvation experience. It's something that changed my life. But this is not what it's talking about because there's this very inclusive nature of what he's talking about, this light shining. Who does it shine on? It shines on? Y'all are getting so good at that. They're gonna be impressed with us before long. So it shines on everyone. Is everyone saved? No, because this passage even points to that. So this idea of this light shining on everyone, at first it looks very inclusive, it looks very universal, but actually what John is doing is creating a dichotomy here. So the universal inclusive aspect of this light is that it shines on every man. And this speaks to illumination. In other words, God has revealed himself. The light has come into the world and there's no place in the world that the light has not been visible. It shines on every man. So this illumination, then if it shines on every man, speaks to the fact that every man's condition Has been exposed. Are you following me so far? The light comes, the light shines on every man. If we're talking about the light in the form of illumination, that means everyone has been revealed. Everyone's true condition has been brought out of the darkness and into the light. So those who hate the light are those who run from it. Why? Because they don't want to be exposed. They don't want their darkness. They don't want their deeds, their evilness to be exposed. They want to hide it. Why? Because they have concealed it in a nice package of religiosity or self-sanctification, whatever it may be. Or either they just love pleasure and they love serving themselves and they love being selfish and so they live that life. They want to run from the light because the light exposes those things. And so those, though, who embrace this light or, think about this, embrace this truth or the true light, now they are not running away from but running to this light. They see their condition and they are humbled by it. They are mortified. They are embarrassed. They feel shame. And they're the ones, like, pictured later on in the gospel where he buries his head and says, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's someone who's had the light shown on them and is not hiding their true condition. They admit their true condition. It has humbled them, and in humility, they respond to God. So the light shines on everyone, exposes all the human hearts, and depending on how we respond, shows what we think of ourselves, shows whether we agree with what the light has exposed or what we are trying to hide from the light exposing in our life. Now, John's gonna expand on this further. Remember, again... We have in chapter 1 him laying out all these details. And then you're going to see him follow this up in chapters that come. And he's going to talk about this. You're going to hear Jesus talking about these types of things in certain encounters that he has. Stories that John shares with us. But let's, let me just give you a taste of that. If you flip over to chapter 3, if you look at verse 20 of chapter 3. Of course, this is after the very famous verse, chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son <clears throat> that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But look at what he says in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the, what does it say? And does not come to the light, least his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, do you see again how, John lays the foundation, and then later on, you're gonna see him start revisiting these things. Obviously, this is talking about the same thing. The light has shone on everyone, but yet there's two different responses to how that light has shone onto humanity. Now, he also talks here about the world. Throughout the rest of John, he will use the term a lot, this world. Now, this is not a, a reference to the cosmos. He's not talking about the created world. He's not talking about the earth and the planets and the universe it's a reference to the created order that is in rebellion against God, the creator. So when he talks about this world, he's making it as the opposite or opposing the world that God intended. So this world is the world that's in rebellion against God's goodness and against God's created order and against God's intentions in creation. Again, in that famous passage that we, uh, that I was quoting just a second ago, John 3, 16, it tells us that God so loved, what does it say? The world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, we think about that and we are amazed that God's love could be so vast that it could love the whole world. But this should not be understood as an endorsement of the world or should the focus be, nor should the focus be on the vastness of what God can love, the capacity, in other words. The reason that this is so miraculous, the reason that John 3.16 is so mind-blowing, it has nothing to do with how enormous God's love is or how big it is. It's because of how bad the world is. God so loved this world this world that's in rebellion against him, this world that you can't find any children of God in it, this world that is in such rebellion, that is infested with such evil. God loved the world that he gave his only son to change the direction, to rescue those who are lost in darkness, to adopt those who were orphans in the darkness and in their evil. That's the beauty of John three sixteen. It's not how big God's love is, it's how massive it is in overcoming the evil of this world. In fact, the way John uses the term world indicates that there are no children out there in the world at all, no children of God. There's only separation in the world. There's only death in this world. When we become children of God, John paints this picture that we come out of this world We come out of darkness. We come out of this world into God's world. We become sojourners here. We come out of darkness and into the light. Look how he continues in verse 10. He was in the world, talking about this light that had come in. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Echoing again, verse three. Yet the world did not know him. Now, this verse is a reiteration. It's a clarification of what John is saying. This brings together verse 3 and these verses right here. It also introduces us to the next point of the flow of John's thought, which is the light has been rejected. He continues it in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, this is actually a reflection, again, of what he said about John the Baptist. What was ironic about his introduction of John the Baptist was this. He says, and there was a man, he uses the singular, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And John was going to be this witness to the light. Now, why is that ironic? Why would that be shocking if we were reading this? when John wrote it, like we were the first hearers of this because we would sit there and go, you know what? There is a man where there should be a whole nation. There is a man who's pointing people to the light when yet there was this whole group of people who had been entrusted with these prophecies, who had been given this promise that through them was gonna come one who would be a Messiah for all the nations, who would bring peace. And yet when he comes onto the scene, there is a man who had to be sent by God to say, wake up everyone, the light is here because we didn't recognize the light. And it just shows our depravity. It shows where our heart will go if not protected and guided by the spirit of God. And again, we see this in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So he came to what was his. He came to his creation. He came to the very thing that should have recognized him and clapped and applauded when he came into the scene, but they did not recognize him. Not only did they not recognize him, they rejected him. You know, we continue to do this in our culture, don't we? We continue to reject God on an ongoing basis. I mean, if you look at the major themes of what we argue about in our culture today, all of them have their roots really in Genesis 1, in creation, all of them. Whether it's a sexual issue or whether it's about life or whether it's about morality or it's any any of those things, you find that we reject God over and over and over again. We reject him in our society. You think about America and our long history. Why did people even come to this continent? They were coming for a place where they could worship freely, out in the open, in public. And over a period of time, what have we done? But we've turned the laws to push those people back into the shadows, to not allow that back in the public place. Even to the point that different times of the year. It seems like it's always an argument about where God can be and how God can be recognized and how we can acknowledge him in certain places, in certain places that's inappropriate. Over and over again, we continue to reject God and we continue to do it in our own life if we're not careful. Over and over again, we want a God who serves us, not a God that we serve. We want him for what he can do for us, not what we can do for him. We want the salvation of sins. We want the forgiveness. We we want the eternal life promised to us. We want the blessings. We want the health. We want all of those things, but we don't want the sacrifice. We don't want to worship God. We just want him to acknowledge us. And if he doesn't acknowledge us, we're not going to acknowledge him. And that's what the society has done and grown to, to this point. Look at verse 12. I don't wanna see 12 and 13 together. I want you to hear them together. We're gonna look at them individually. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So verse 12 points out a very important point that we all have to come to grips with. And I want to be clear on this. Not everyone becomes a child of God. Did you hear me? And is it crystal clear? Scripture teaches this over and over again. It's hard in our society today to talk about it, to accept it, but it's very clear. It's crystal clear. Not everyone becomes a child of God. And so Verse 12 and verse 13 reveal to us some important truths in understanding what it means to be a child of God. This is an explanation right out of the gate that John gives to us in his gospel on how someone becomes a child of God. Verse 12 and 13 are so important because they tell us the process. They tell us what that looks like as we walk through it. And so I want you to think about this. How many of you today would consider yourself? You don't have to raise your hands. I just want you to think about this. How many of you would consider yourself, I'm a child of God? We sang songs about being a child of God right today, but are you truly a child of God? How do you know if you are a child of God? Well, he talks right here very clearly in this, that it has something to do with receiving and believing, doesn't it? You see, there is this picture that John is going to create as you go through his gospel that when you get to the end of it, it's crystal clear, you can know that you're saved. Matter of fact, he writes that at the end. He says, I've written all of these things so that you may know, No. Jesus answered the Pharisees one time. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Keep that word slave in the back of your mind. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are an offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Again, there's the word. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from, what does he say? Your father. There's two families represented here. How do you know which family you're in? Depends on which father you're doing the will of. There's the father of this world, the father of darkness, and there's the father of light. There's the creator and the one who likes to destroy the creation. Which father are you serving? So there are definitely two different families and not everyone is going to be a child of God. But to those who do become a child of God, man, think about all that you get. Think about all that's yours. It costs to be a child of God. But here's the thing. It doesn't cost you near what it cost him. You think about God when he spoke creation into existence ex nihilio out of nothing he speaks it and everything responds there was nothing there he speaks it into existence that didn't cost god anything did it i mean god didn't have to pay anything he didn't sacrifice anything to create the entire world and you know what revelation tells us that when god calls his children home it's not going to cost him anything he's going to say son go get your bride And it's going to be a beautiful day with a beautiful feast, but it's not going to cost God anything. But when it came time to save your soul and my soul, God had to butcher his only son on Calvary's cross so that you could be adopted into his family. Our salvation is the only thing that's ever cost God anything. I want you to think about that for a moment i want you to just let that set heavy on your soul do you treat your salvation with the dignity and respect that it deserves because the creator god had to sacrifice something for you to have that This is the heaviness that John wants to bring us into, that there is this, we're talking about life and death here. We're talking about what family you're going to be a part of. We're not talking about a kind of salvation where you pray a prayer and all the angels in heaven rejoice and then you walk out of that door never to be seen again. That's not the kind of salvation that John is talking about here. He's talking about true salvation, not just being saved in a moment in time, but being saved for eternity, It's this ongoing salvation. Matter of fact, look at verse 12 again. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right. Now, the word right, a better word there or a similar word that maybe is a little clearer is the word authority. He gave the authority to become children of God. Now, I want to point out one other thing. There's this receive and believe, and I'm not sure why the ESV translates the word believed in the past tense because everything that I've read in the commentaries and and going back to the Greek that it points to that it's in the present tense. So it's an ongoing belief. It's not I believed back there, but it's I believed back there and I continue in my belief into the present. And as I move forward, I continue to believe. So it's this process of believing is what it's talking about. So there is this receiving and believing in his name. And then somehow when we receive and believe in Christ, he then gives us this authority to become children of God. So verse 12 sets these two conditions together, receive, believe, and then this idea of authority that's given when there is this receiving and believing. So receiving, this is about taking Jesus for who he is and not taking Jesus for who you want him to be. I can't tell you how many times I've run into people who are sold out followers of Christ and then you meet them a little later on in life and they've gone through a crisis And and maybe they're still followers or maybe they're completely agnostic. But what they have done is they've walked through something and without going into details or creating a scenario, in essence, what they say is, God turned out in some kind of crisis not to be the kind of God I wanted, so I'm not gonna be the kind of follower he wanted. That is not a dedication taking God for who he is because if God is sovereign and God is good and God is merciful and God is just, then we have to take him as he is. Do you know in our wedding ceremonies, we go through these things called vows. Now we've heard them so many times that we just kind of get used to it and we hear the whole thing go through it. And then we always go, oh, if they wrote their own vows out because we know they're gonna be way longer and this wedding's gonna take forever to get through when they write their own, right? You know what I'm talking about. But if they have those traditional vows, what do we say? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Now, here's the thing. Legally, wouldn't that be all you'd really have to agree to? But for some reason, we go further than that. It's like in this moment, yes, everything is perfect. And look how beautiful she is. I mean, she's got that pretty dress on and her hair is perfect. And look at him, he's never looked that good. I mean, he's never looked that put together. And so everyone's here, our friends, our family. I mean, there's something so perfect about this moment and so beautiful about this moment. Why wouldn't I agree to that? And then all of a sudden the minister interjects, hey, but will you take her for better or for worse? Well, well, yeah. What about for richer or for poorer? Okay. What about in sickness and in health? Okay. Do you take her for as long as you live and let death be the only thing that separates you? I mean, if we really thought about what we were agreeing to there, we would take a little bit longer of a moment to respond, wouldn't we? I'd be like, let me think about this again, you know? (laughs) I hadn't thought about it that deeply yet. That's a good question. Let me think for a second. How much money do you have? Um, But the, but the, the essence of why we do that is because what we're saying is you've got to take them for who they are. And in essence, when we come to salvation, it is also taking God for who he is. That doesn't mean taking God for only the things that I want from him. Not just the forgiveness of my sins, not just the blessings that I want, not just to feel good, not just to go there when I'm going through a difficult time and going, oh, look at all these promises that are geared towards me. No, it's also recognizing that it's for his glory, that it's for his name to be made great that I have been saved. It's not for my name to be great. It's not for my situation to be better. It's for his renown and glory to go forward, right? So we talk about Jonathan and his wife going to Indonesia. Man, why would they, why would you do that? I've been to Indonesia. Let me tell you, it doesn't get any better than this right here. Okay? And you go to Indonesia and there are people everywhere. I mean, they're right around these little scooters, and I don't know how they don't run over each other. And I saw one scooter, had a whole family, a family of seven, on a moped. He had a he had a two by four, a little bit bigger than that, probably strapped onto that scooter till it went about that far off the back of the bike and he had his kids sitting on that and him in front and he had, I promise you, I promise you, uh, no more than a seven-month-old sitting on in front of him between the handlebars and he perfectly weaved through that traffic. Everybody just waving at you. I mean, it's amazing. But why would somebody leave this place and go to a place like that for the renown and glory of God? because we live for something bigger than ourselves for our own comfort, because we buy into the fact that this world is temporary and it's not going to last forever. And somehow I want to live for something that is beyond me, a legacy that's not based in who I am, but based in who God is. You see, believing, believing is the essence of humility. We're going to notice as we go through the gospel of John that the humble are the ones who become the children of God and the proud are the ones who reject Jesus. Over and over again, he's going to give you these situations and Jesus' light shines on them. He exposes the darkness of the Pharisees and they turn and they point their bony finger back at him and make accusations. His light shines on the woman at the well and she fights it for a minute, but then she just kind of cowers in her depravity. And Jesus says you know what? You can be a part of the kingdom of God. Do you see over and over again, wherever Jesus goes, his light shines. It just depends on how people respond, whether they become children of God or not. So they receive and then they believe, believing the essence, the essence of that humility that we are called to in salvation. Now, We're going to see the definition of believing expand as we go through the gospel of John. Believing is so much more than just this mental ascent to knowledge. It is also welcoming the work that Christ wants to accomplish in us and through us. Now, I want you to look again at verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. And who believed in his name, he, meaning Jesus, gave the right, the authority to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, first I want you to notice the connection between Jesus in verse 12 and God in verse three. Do you see that? Again, John is making this assimilation that Jesus and God are the same one. Okay, God does this, Jesus does this work in verse 12. God does this work. God is the one who makes these children, brings these children in from death where they were nothing into being the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. But somehow Jesus gives us the right and the authority to actually become the children of God. So there's a very important connection between verse 12 and 13. In verse 13, God is our father, but in verse 12, John tells us that in order for us to have that in order for God to be our father. In other words, in order for that to happen, we need to have an authority, a right given to us by Jesus. Why? Well, first of all, we see here again, an allusion back to the original creation. Go back and look at verse 12 and 13 again. Look specifically at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, there's only really two people that you can point to in reality who were born that way, Jesus and the first Adam. The first Adam was not born of the flesh, was he? It wasn't someone who was having passion for another person and they created another human being. It wasn't born of the will of man. There wasn't two people come together and said, we need to leave a legacy for each other. And so we need to create more human life. It wasn't, it was born of the will of God. The only other person you can point to is Jesus. It was not two flashes coming together to form it. It wasn't the will of Mary or Joseph that Jesus came. It was the will of God. So again, what we see is when we become the children of God, it is the same picture. Somehow it is the will of God that brings us in as children. It is not our flesh. It is not our will. It is his will that he draws us to himself. And notice in the first creation, how did man, after he had been completely formed, it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. How do we become a children of God? God breathes into us the spirit of God, which is another word for breath. They're very similar in the Greek language. And we become living children of God, born of God by God's will, by God's design, made alive by God. What a beautiful picture of salvation. We are born, but here's the problem. Even though we are born and we become children of God, we're still sinners, aren't we? I mean, I don't think there's anybody in this room that has become a child of God and yet has not continued to struggle with sin. I mean it still affects our soul doesn't it? it still affects our walk with God it's still whenever we walk into those moments it separates us from God we, we, have you ever been in that moment where you were willfully sinning against God and you just didn't want to talk to him you didn't want to have any you knew where you stood you knew that you were being rebellious and you're like there's no reason to go talk to him because I'm living in this and it's like you begin to think to yourself why am I doing this this doesn't make any sense And it's like we are children of God, but yet that rebellious nature is still there, which is why verse 12 is so important. It's by not our authority, but the authority of Christ that we are made able to become children of God. It's God's will that He makes us His children, but guess what? He can make us His children and we would rebel because of our sinful nature, and we would be back in our rebellion and separation from God. We have to have something that keeps us intact, something where we don't have to keep coming back and keep getting saved over and over and over again. Just like Jesus is going to say just a little while in the Gospel of John, that children, that sons stay in the house, they don't ever leave. So somehow we need to be made children of God where we are not in rebellious states that we can't get out of. The only way that can be done is through the person of Jesus who lived the perfect life who died and paid the penalty of sin on the cross, who was buried in the grave and rose three days later, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And then Paul begins to celebrate this in Ephesians chapter one, doesn't he? With that big run on sentence, in him we have life, in him we are adopted into the kingdom of God, in him we have every spiritual blessing. It's ours in Christ Jesus, in him, in him, in him, because it is the righteousness of Christ that is applied to us. So because of the authority, of Christ, because he defeated death, hell, and the grave, he has the authority to say, Father, this one is ours, and he is with me, and I am giving my righteousness to him. So even though we struggle through this life, and we fight to be obedient in our following after Christ, and we want to be more and more like the image of God, here's the beauty of salvation. You are not fighting those sins anymore to be forgiven of them. You're fighting sins so that you reflect the nature of God more perfectly. The sins have already been forgiven, past, present, future, paid in full. Now, if anyone can hear that story and think, man, I just wanna continue living in my rebellion, you're not a child of God. Can you hear me? You're not a child of God. And you need to go and you need to do some heavy self-examination of your soul. There's no way you can hear that story and think to yourself, Man, that's awesome. If my sins are paid for and I'm in then I'm gonna go out and do what I wanna do. How could you hear the love of the father when you are in full rebellion? He reaches out and pays the only thing that he's ever had to pay in his entire existence so that you could become a child. And when you become a child, you wanna run back. That's not a child of God. Because even though you're not perfect, even though sin will always haunt you and you'll always be struggling with, to the day that you die, you will never be comfortable with it you will always be drawn back to, oh, I know this is, I've got to repent of this. I've got to, I want to reflect the glory of God in the way that I live my life. See, this is why we need the authority of Christ. This is why God has gone to great extremes to bring us into his family. But listen, it's not just about being a child of God. It's about being that reflector of God's glory that we Will become the light of the world. Not that we take Jesus' place, but what happens is because we are in Christ, we begin to reflect His glory to the world around us. That's our great ambition. That's why someone would leave this place and go to the other side of the world to reflect the glory of God in a dark place. That's why many of you will go to work to a job that seems so miserable and so dead in, and yet you go with joy. Why? Because you're not there to create something for yourself. You're there to reflect the glory of God in a dark place. That's why many of you, even though you may retire, you never retire. You work harder in retirement than you ever did when you were working because the kingdom of God still needs to be advanced. And so you give your time and your energy to the kingdom of God expansion by reflecting the glory of God where he has called you. Brothers and sisters, this is the great family of God that we are invited into. He is the great father that we have been called to reflect. And it is for his glory and it is for his namesake and- for his renown that we are called. Amen. What a beautiful picture of what our gospel is. And it is our gospel because we are in Christ. Let's pray together. As you sit and reflect, I want to read these verses just all together again. And as we've talked about and accentuated some of these words, I want you to just listen anew and let it wash over your soul. The true light Lord Jesus, we are indebted to you. In our dead sin of state, a dead state of sin, in our lifeless form, and our spirituality, you saw us there, dwelling in the darkness. And you left your throne in heaven, and you became the light in this dark place sent by the Father to reflect the glory for us. But we're honest, God, that when the glory of who you are and your righteousness reflected on our life and our soul, we were ashamed of what we saw. We realized how wretched we'd become, how rebellious we are. It had become about our glory, and it had become about our ambition, our selfish ambition. And yet you saw us in that lowly state and you could have left us there, but you came to give us a chance, to give us an opportunity. You chose to come to us. Lord, I can't explain salvation fully. My mind does not comprehend it, but my heart revels in it. The fact that Creator God would care about what happens with me, that you cared enough that you wanna give me gifts through your spirit, that you wanna use me for your kingdom to further your name in your creation. What an incredible invitation. God forgive us for not taking it seriously. Forgive us for wallowing in the darkness even though we've been invited to come into the light. Lord, I don't know where everyone here is in their spiritual journey, but Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work of your kingdom in the hearts of those who are willing to hear. And may you receive the honor and the glory that is due to you in our response to the teaching of your word. we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions about what it means to be a